So today, it's an exciting day. We have a lot of things that are going on. As you can see, our children are joining us in here. We like to do family Sundays, and we like to do that because I'm not about the, you know, just keep the kids in the back so we can have church kind of thing. The kids have church in back every single Sunday, and it's awesome that they can be in here with us today having church. I'm thankful for every teacher who gives of their time and loves on our children. They are a great bunch. We're proud of them. Today, I just want to take a few minutes, and I want to speak on a familiar passage of Scripture. I had several things this week that I'm thinking, that's the direction, that's the direction. But there was passage, two verses that got a hold of me, kind of messed me up, kind of checked me in a lot of ways. And so I just wanted to share with you what God had laid on my heart. You know, as a church, as people of God, sometimes we can be called evangelicals. You ever noticed that? In the media, they call us that. Sometimes it's a descriptor, but sometimes it's just a put down. An evangelical, one who shares good news, one who tells a message to others. There was a man, his name was Lou Jolene. He died last year at the age of 89, but prior to his death, he had run over 133 marathons in ultramarathons. He had completed at least one marathon in each state. When they asked this man... What's your secret? What is it? What drives you? He simply said that his key to success was being a member of two or three running clubs. He said, this gives me people who will run alongside me. Today, I want to challenge you, church. I want to challenge myself. The text is from John 13, verses 34 and 35. This is Jesus speaking, and he says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You are also to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. A disciple, not one of those just original 12. We don't limit it there, but we say a disciple is one who follows the teachings of Jesus and loves like Jesus. That word love. It is said that 200 years ago, an encyclopedia was printed. And in that encyclopedia, the word atom was defined. And it took them four sentences to define atom. It took them five pages to define love. 200 years later, it takes them five pages to try and define atom, and most leave the word love out. This is where we are. In these two verses, that word love is used four times. It speaks of an agape-type love. This is a selfless, sacrificial, unconditional-type love that when the love of Jesus touches your heart, it should begin to flow from you. That word love is said in the present tense, meaning do it now and don't stop. It might get tough, it might get ugly at times, but keep on loving. That phrase, one another, you don't need a Greek dictionary to study to find out that that doesn't mean 
anyone but yourself. You know, when you're thinking the one another, like I look at myself so much and God's like, no, no, it's, it's the church. It's the church. It's the people in here. It's not you, man. It's weird because I used to do this experiment, if you will, little psychology, junior psychologist. I would purchase donuts for the youth group at times. Once I purchased donuts and I went in and I said, I want a box with all glazed, except I want one with chocolate sprinkles. Time came for a snack. Open up the box. You know, all the kids, everyone's selfless until the chocolate sprinkle donut's the only one in the box, right? And they would have fought like gladiators to get that chocolate sprinkle donut. This is human nature. This is kind of who we are. We need to commit to loving one another because we're in community with one another. That pronoun you, it is repeated so much in that verse. Hear it again. A commandment I give to you that you love one another as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. There's no mistaking there, right? We get to a place and it's almost like, God, are you talking to me? Oh, he's talking to us. He's talking directly to us. In the third century, there was a writer, Tertullian. He spoke about the opposition to Christianity. He wrote how pagans viewed Christians. It is mainly the deeds of a love so noble that lead many to put a brand upon Christians. See, they say how they love one another, how they're even ready to die for one another. One heathen said about Christians, they love one another almost before they know one another. Jesus' time walking this earth was coming to a close in this scripture. He had just shared the Last Supper with his disciples. Judas had set out to betray Jesus. The plan was in action. Jesus knew this. Jesus could have spent his last hours with his disciples talking about loyalty because it seemed timely. He could have spent his last hours just running Judas down because, well, Judas in this case. There are three points, though, that I don't want to miss. First one is that Jesus wasn't asking when it comes to this scripture. He wasn't asking. Jesus doesn't tell us to do something that he's not willing to do. And Jesus knew that a lost world would be watching us. Those disciples, they were going to go through some hard times. As the Christian faith began to grow, there would be less tolerance of them and what they preached. Religious liberties would vanish from them. And there would be huge divisions even among believers and how they believed as time went on. Does that sound like a time we're living in? I say that because as a church, you know, I'm challenged in a way. God, how do you want us to live in this day and in this time? Because I'm done with passive faith. I'm done living in a way where I'm reactive to what the world throws at us. I'm ready to see the people of God rise up. Jesus wasn't asking in this scripture. He could have told his disciples anything, but he says in verse 34, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. That word new doesn't mean that he just invented love. 
It's wild because when you think about it, during that time, the Christian faith, like belief in Christ, it was very regional. It was very limited. It hadn't gotten that church growth explosion that would happen after Pentecost. But this idea of saying, for the sake of Jesus, if we were to say that, you know, if you went out and did a good deed in the world, if you paid a bill for someone at a restaurant, like, why'd you do that? Well, I did it because I wanted to show the love of Jesus. Even a pagan would understand what that meant. But this was a time where that may not even be understood. That word commandment, the word commandment, when you look up that Greek word, it means a charge or commission. When people get married, and I'm the officiant on this stage, I always start out a ceremony by asking them, you know, I charge them, do you understand the gravity of what is about to take place here? It's almost like Jesus is saying, do you understand the gravity of love when it comes from me? It's not a suggestion, it's essential, it's not optional. Another meaning of that word is an authoritative prescription. Jesus, the great physician, looking down through time and saying, the world is going to be messed up, and the prescription that I, the doctor, am writing is one for love. Walk in love amongst yourselves. We pause. We look at this. A new commandment. In Leviticus 19, the people had been told to love their neighbors as themselves. In Matthew 5, they were told to love their enemies. But this one, love like Jesus loves, it takes it to a whole new level. Jesus doesn't ask you and I to do something that he's not willing to do himself. Often you hear people say, I just don't know how I'm supposed to love people. Verse 34, just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. Why is it new? Because the bar before was simply love someone as much as you love yourself. But now the question would be, church, how has Jesus loved you? Think about in your darkest times how Jesus' love was there. Think about the way that he has reached down when your heart has been broken, the way that Jesus loves. There's a passage in John 15, 12 that this echoes. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Jesus, he always leads by example. John 13, 1 says this, that having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. That scripture there to the end, it doesn't just mean as long as he was here hanging out with them. It meant while he was with them, he was loving them to the highest level of love that he could have for them. This is our example. Jesus, when in earlier in that chapter, he washes their feet. Isn't it wild that we don't read he did some ceremonial type foot washing? Jesus quite literally gets up from the table, takes off his outer garment, gets the towels, fills up a basin, and begins to wash feet. If this was a math problem, 12 disciples times two feet, that's 24 feet that he took his time and washed. It's amazing how the love of Jesus works. He could have simply gotten out a wet wipe and knelt down and be like, you guys should clean one another every once in a while. My grandma carried a paper towel around, and those paper towels would last for weeks on end. And when I'd have dirt on my face, my grandma would lick that towel and rub whatever was on my face. I attribute my survival during pandemics and everything else that comes our way with my grandmother's saliva 
just building up my immunity. Jesus was our model and Jesus is our why. At this church, we're big on the why. Why do we do what we do? It wasn't a performance. It was modeling how it should be. Jesus says in verses 14 and 15, if I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, then you ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example that you also should do just as I've done to you. Someone's getting nervous here thinking I'm about to go old school on you and bust out the basin like we're going to wash each other's feet in this tub before we baptize. What I'm saying is this, that Jesus' love takes the situation and finds a way to serve in that situation. If we can learn one thing from this, it is that every interaction is an opportunity to show the love of Christ in a brand new way. The third thing, Jesus knew that the world would be watching. Verse 35, by this, all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. It's not my preferences, it's not my politics, and it's not my principles that are going to convince people. It's the love of Jesus Christ. This is tough for me, though, because I like to talk about all three of those things at length sometimes. But the 11 disciples would only survive and thrive if they walked in Jesus' love. They were never meant to go it alone. You were never meant to go it alone. That love gave them hope in persecution behind prison bars. That love led to the joy of seeing the family of God grow in such a real way that that love was part of the very fabric of that church. I saw a quote, and it hit me, and it reminded me of something, because I'm a child of the 80s. I was a child of the 70s, but I acted like a child in the 80s. In order for us to truly love one another and for this broken world to see Jesus, we must recognize that love is not so much an emotion, but an active emulation of the one who first loved us. There was a young man who attended here years ago, and one day he came up to me and he handed me this disc, and he said, this is going to change your life. I'm like, is it? And so I went home and I put this in my computer, and it was an emulator of arcade games that I spent many hours and many quarters at the Great Lakes Mall playing. And when I put it in, there were hundreds of games on there. And what was wild about it, when I was playing Pac-Man, it wasn't like it was Pac-Man, it was Pac-Man, right? And this is the way, when it comes to showing Jesus' love, it's not like Jesus' love, it is Jesus' love to the world. Show them Be part of that. Get in there. That phrase, all people, all people need to see this. The love that we have for one another should immediately show Jesus. Here's something. There was a saying. They even used it for a commercial. What happens in Vegas, what? Stays in Vegas. If we're not careful as a church, then our motto could be what happens at church stays in church. When we walk in Jesus' love, these walls won't contain it. They will not contain it. What does that look like, practically speaking? It looks like a picture I posted on the church website two days ago of a child in Ecuador in dirty clothes with a dirty face standing beside a well that love dug. That's what it looks like. 
It looks like continued support for friends of recovery. That's what love will do. When we love one another, it will inspire us to make change in the communities where we live. It looks like new picnic tables at Queensdale. It looks like a hoodie collection that's going to take place here today. I need the kids in a moment when I call on you. Everyone that was up here singing, I'm going to need you, crew, because we're going to be praying over these hoodies. I need to say it in a real clear way. This morning during worship, did you notice the firewall of children that was up here? If you want to see faith in action, watch them worship. This is not something we do that's cutesy. It's something that we do because I'm telling you what, I love all of you. If I have a need and I call on someone, if a 10-year-old walks up to pray for me, they have faith in this house and I know it. I am looking at them as giants. When you look at the things that happen, when you look at your walk, do people know that you're a Christian by your love? Do they know that you're a Christian by how devoted you are? Here's a question. Is there a believer in the family of God that really bothers you? Don't say their name. That would be awkward. (laughs) Do you find it difficult to be loving to those who are difficult? Confession. I do, and I'm a pastor. It can be tough at times. We're commanded to love one another. Just to be real, church, we can get in places where we pick our crew and we don't want to really extend love any any farther than that. This verse hit me this week, though. Like, what if my idea of dislike is honestly just a nicer way of saying hate? But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. You think with those disciples there weren't disagreements? I just studied about Peter for a few weeks. You don't think that with this man Peter that he would stir the pot every once in a while? You know they argued. You know that they didn't get along at times. There were differences. But here's the truth. They were learning how to love. Are we learning how to love? The story is told of two preachers. One was named George Whitefield. The other one was Charles Wesley. They were contemporaries. They had significant theological differences. Often they would have heated conversation and conflict. One day, a friend of Whitefield's asked him, do you think that we're going to see when we get to heaven, John Wesley standing there? Whitefield quickly answered, no, I do not think we shall. His friend was delighted with this answer until Whitefield continued. I believe that Mr. John Wesley will have a place so near the throne of God that such poor creatures as you and I will be so far off as to be hardly able to see him. Even in difference, even in disagreement, Whitefield loved Wesley like Jesus would love Wesley. Here's a question. I'm going to close here in a moment. If there was a trial today, and the only evidence that could be submitted against you in this trial would be your love for others in the house of God, in the family of God, and the goal would be to convict you of being a Christian on those grounds, would they be able to convict you? Church, I need to do better. I don't know about the rest of you, but it hit me this week hard, and I need to do better. I need to find more time. 
I need to give of the things that are precious to me when it comes to those things that bless others. God is moving. Look at this house. Look at the worship that was going on. Look at these children. God is moving. Just as that Tertullian said, they love one another almost before they know one another. This is the feeling that I want to be in the house. Before we pray over these hoodies, because you may or may not be aware, we're collecting hoodies. There are some men who have been doing outreach. It sounds so weird. They've really just been loving like Jesus, been handing out sandwiches. They've been praying for people. They've been spending time. You've been looking at others and giving them dignity. We're going to pray over those, but there's something that I cannot leave this house without addressing. A statement I saw this week, loving the little, the least, and the lost. Matthew 19, 14 says, Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for such belongs to the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 25, 40 says, Truly I say to you, as you did it to the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. The Guardian newspaper was doing something, and they were looking for the most prolific photograph of the past hundred years. And do you know what photograph they were able to come up with and brand as the greatest photograph? It was a picture of an 18-week-old baby surrounded by an amniotic sac. It appeared in the 1965 cover of Life magazine. The title of the story which surrounded these photos was Drama of Life Before Birth. There was a Supreme Court decision on January 22, 1973. On Tuesday, there will be an issue one, which will be on ballots. As a pastor, here are two things. Number one, your right to vote. Has been bought and maintained by the blood of the brave. Never would I insult a veteran by telling them that I'm just not gonna. Every time the ballot's open, I want to be there. It's a right. It's a privilege. The second part of this, though, and I'm going to be quite clear. I do not stand here to be politically correct. I stand here to be biblically sound. Life begins at conception. If you do not believe that, then let me read you a couple of verses. Jeremiah 1, 4 through 5. Now the word of the Lord came to me saying, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you to be a prophet to the nations.
what I say is this. You have been given a right and a privilege that people on the other side of the world would give anything for, and that's called freedom. This is a great nation. You, as a child of God, what I would ask is this. You take some time. You pray. You ask God, Lord, what would you have me do? And you vote what you believe to be the Lord's leading to be. But I'm telling you this. Life begins at conception. In a moment, we're going to be baptizing some people. It's one of the great privileges and honors in being here. Before we do that, we're going to bring the table in. When the table comes in, if you're one of those life kids, could you make your way out here around this table? We're going to circle it up. We're going to pray a blessing over every hoodie that goes on this table that whomever gets these things would know the love of Jesus in a tangible way. Church, I'd like to thank you for supporting this effort. Oh, throw them on there till they flow over. Stack them around. Make a mess up here on these stairs if you need to. is something kids I need you Come circle this up. Yeah, just find a good spot around there. This is my crew. Yeah, come on around. Church, in a moment, here's how I would like you to pray. Something that we are accused of quite often is saying that we will pray for people and leaving it at that. Someone who is homeless and living in a tent, we will certainly pray for. 
but if we do not leave them better off than we found them. Then where's our testimony? If you'll stand with me. No crew, when we pray, here's what I want you to pray. Whoever gets these things feels the love of Jesus. That it wouldn't be about church, but it would be about a Savior. You bow your heads, everyone. Father, right now we come before you. First, I would like to thank you, God, for people who are courageous enough that their words and their hearts and their actions are lining up to go to the places that most people would avoid. And right now, Father, I pray for every person that will be touched by this pile of clothing, by the sandwiches that are handed out, by the love that is shown. God, we pray your rich blessing would go before, go before them. And God, what I pray is this, that people that we may never meet until we get to heaven, that when we see them, in that moment we will know, God, that your plan is a good plan, that your love is a great love, and that your salvation, Lord, is no respecter of persons. I thank you for this crew. I thank you for what you're doing here in the name of Jesus. Amen.